Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you, if but virtually this fine morning. As most of you know, we're currently going through a series on the seven churches of Revelation. And this morning, we're looking at the sixth church, uh, which is Philadelphia. Uh, but before we do that, let's just uh, read the passage. It's Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet, and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, as we come to read your word, to hear your word, uh, to speak your word this morning, may we hear from you, and may we hear from the one who is holy and true. Thank you, Father. So as I said today, we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia and the message uh, of Christ to that church. And I want to look at uh, three things, three things this morning that come out of this letter. Uh, one main thing, uh, which has three sub-things, and then two other things or outcomes uh, from that thing. But before we do that, I'd like to take a step back and just remind ourselves of the context into which the book of Revelation was written. Uh, you see, this book was written by the Apostle John, who at the time uh, was exiled on the island of Patmos for his faith. It was written to a church that was undergoing intense persecution. Uh, in fact, it was believed to be written around 80 AD in the time of the Emperor Domitian. And by then, Christian tradition records that John was probably the only one of the twelve still alive. Uh, all the other eleven, and Paul as well, had all been martyred for their faith. So this is written to a church undergoing persecution and it was Emperor Domitian uh, who really stepped up uh, the cult of emperor worship uh, in Rome at the time. Uh, there had been previous attempts at that by previous emperors and uh, Christians had, uh, had suffered persecution in particular. But it was Domitian uh, that ultimately demanded universal worship of himself on pain of death. And anyone who refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord uh, would face uh, a death for their trouble. So it's into this context that John is given a vision uh, to communicate a message of challenge and hope to a persecuted church, a call for patient endurance, a call to overcome. Because in the face of such intense persecution, the natural temptation for the church uh, was to compromise with society, to somehow water down their beliefs, to see if there was a way that they could peacefully coexist uh, with this cult of emperor worship, uh, to not have to experience pain and suffering uh, as a consequence. And so we have this letter, uh, not written to a bunch of intellectual scholars uh, or to the church hierarchy, 
uh, but a letter to be read out in each of the seven churches uh, to the ordinary people of the day. A call to endure in the face of persecution, because ultimately, although it is bad now, and will get even worse for a time, Jesus wins and his kingdom will endure. It's an unveiling, a revelation of heaven to show the persecuted church that even though their current circumstance is hard and they may not understand what's going on, God is at work and God is in control. And so this, uh, this sixth section, this letter to the church in Philadelphia, uh, what about Philadelphia? What was their situation? Uh, Philadelphia was located uh, in modern day Turkey and historically, it was the gateway to the Central Asian Plateau and had been used in the past uh, for the expansion of the Greek ideals. So it had a bit of a missionary context about it. It was located, unfortunately, on a fault line. And although it was a pros prosperous city initially, it was hit by a devastating earthquake and a series of uh, afterquakes, um, which completely destroyed it. Uh, and so those that stayed were considered a little bit foolish uh, for wanting to stay in that place. The church itself had also suffered uh, persecution at the hands of a local synagogue, the synagogue of Satan, that's uh, referenced here. Um, it's likely that at least some of the church were the Jew Jewish diaspora and Christianity was initially considered a Jewish sect. And so being a Jewish sect, uh, it would have been exempted from the requirements of emperor worship. However, this would only last as long as their names were on the roll of the uh, local synagogue. And here in Philadelphia, the synagogue had firmly and violently shut the door in their faces and excluded them uh, from the synagogue. They'd been struck off the list, which meant uh, they were now uh, obliged to uh, worship the emperor or face death. So this is a church that's facing a huge amount of persecution and a church that really needed to hear these words of encouragement. Uh, words that said they have not been abandoned, that there is hope. Uh, so Christ comes to them with a message Christ, who calls himself in this passage, the one who is holy and true. Uh, this Christ will not abandon them. He will not let them down. He will not lie to them. He will not betray them. Uh, he is completely other to all that they have experienced at the hands of the society that they live in. And this is the message that he brings to them. And this is the first thing I really want to have a look at. You see, this is only one of two churches that face no word of rebuke or condemnation uh, in the letters but simply a commendation. Uh, and what is that commendation? Simply that they have endured, that they have stood, that they have not denied the name of Christ, that they have kept Christ's word. You see, they're not commended for being an amazing church with amazing ministries and uh, huge congregations or lively worship services, but simply for the fact that they'd endured in the face of such uh, opposition and such uh, persecution. They are not an impressive church on the surface. Uh, in fact, they are called weak, and it says that you have little strength. But the fact is they have stuck with Christ, and for this they are commended. The Greek word used is hupomeno. It's a word used uh, frequently uh, throughout the Bible, and it's translated often as steadfastness or patient endurance. It means literally to bear up under, to stand. You see, this is a mark of the Christian cannot be overemphasized how important this is scripture is full of references to this uh, for the church for christians to endure to stand to persevere in the face of trials of suffering of persecution but why why should they and why should we persevere 
we may not see here in Australia the level of persecution that these guys had to go through in Philadelphia. But why shouldn't we make our lives a little bit easier? Why shouldn't we try to fit in with society a bit more to compromise our faith, uh, either a little or a lot? There are three, things, three reasons I want to look at this morning, three sub-things that I mentioned. Um, the first is that we follow Christ. Christ who suffered greatly and endured patiently. Christ has gone before us in this. The writer to the Hebrews uh, notes in chapter 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, as we follow Christ, it's inevitable that we will come up against opposition. Suffering, pain, trials, these are all to be expected in this world. But Christ has gone before us. And his response, what did he do? And this brings us to the second thing. It says in the Hebrews passage, for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, the second thing is, is there's a promise. We do not suffer for nothing. Suffering, pain, trials, persecution, they're not only normal, but they're also purposeful. James writes, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And that's the same word, hupomeno, that was used, used in the uh, Revelation passage. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Similarly, Paul writes to the Romans, We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This means that we don't have to decry suffering, wondering what on earth's going on, because surely life shouldn't be this hard, and so suffer with despair. Nor do we take a stiff upper lip approach where we say, well, life's just hard, this is the way it is, we've just got to get on with it, dig deep, soldier on. And it's neither of those approaches. Instead, we can suffer with hope, because we know that trials can have purpose. They develop perseverance, character, hope. And this is not the flimsy hope of a gambler hoping beyond hope that they might have won the lottery this week. This is the sure hope of a Christian because we know that Christ has done it. Christ has been there. He has paid the price. Our future is secure in him. He has won and ultimately we will be with him. This present reality is not forever. You see, we may not understand what's going on right now. And the message here is that we don't have to. We just know that Christ has won. That Christ has us. We are in him. And so it's as we suffer with this hope, this is what allows us to endure patiently, knowing that the final outcome, which brings me to the third something, that suffering can bring good outcomes. You see, if we choose to patiently endure and suffer with hope, it develops perseverance, as those passages said, or resilience, to use a more common term in our day and age. And this 
builds character. You see, suffering can educate, it can enrich, it can make us more human. Think about all the great art uh, that has come out of intense pain and suffering. Suffering can also uh, bring us to a place of compassion and understanding of others. So how do we ensure whatever our trials may be, and whatever the things that cause us pain and suffering, how do we ensure that we bear them with hope and not with despair or with resentment? Because those things will ultimately lead to hardness and bitterness and brokenness. How do we ensure good outcomes uh, from our suffering and from our pain? I believe the thing we need to do is put ourselves under the authority of Christ, recognising that we do not and cannot control everything in our lives, but that he does. Although we don't always understand what is going on, uh, we can be confident that he does, because he's gone before us. He knows what it's like to suffer. But he also, as mentioned in this passage, he holds the key of David. What does that mean? It means he has accesses to all the resources of the kingdom. So that's the first thing, uh, the major thing I believe we hear that this letter is telling us, the call to endure patiently, come what may, to overcome, to hold on. So now I want to start looking at the two things that come out of that, the two outcomes. Firstly, uh, the opportunity. For the Philadelphian Christians, uh, these guys have had the door of the synagogue firmly shut in their faces. But yet Christ comes with the key of David. Now this is a reference to Isaiah 22, uh, a prophetic passage uh, which describes the key given to the palace administrator for access to all the riches and resources of the kingdom. It's with this key uh, that Christ has absolute authority to open and shut doors. It says, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And so he places before the church in Philadelphia an open door with access to all the resources of heaven, uh, to further purposes of heaven. This church has patiently endured persecution, suffering, pain, shut doors, and yet it has not denied Christ. And so Christ puts before them an open door, a door no one can shut, access to the kingdom. What if it is how they have handled the closed doors that have come their way? All that pain, all that suffering, all that persecution. How they have chosen to suffer with hope rather than become bitter and angry. How they have chosen uh, to stand fast, not to deny Christ. What if it's that that has prepared them uh, for this open door that Christ puts before them? And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the doors that Christ has opened in our lives? We often spend a lot of time considering all the closed doors, uh, all the shut doors in our lives, whatever they may be, broken relationships, missed opportunities, loss of work. These are things we, we need to hold in prayer before God because we often don't understand why they have happened. But what if rather than focus our attention on these things, what if instead we look to the doors that Christ has opened for us? So I want to tell you a story uh, of another Philadelphia church and another time and another place. Uh, this is the church of St Thomas Philadelphia in Sheffield uh, in England, the church Emma and I were a part of before we came to Australia. The history of this, how this church came to be is uh, St Thomas's at the time we first uh, arrived in Sheffield was meeting in, a, in an old nightclub called the Roxy in the city of Sheffield. It's a church that had grown uh, phenomenally in a few years uh, with a major outreach to young people, to students of the city. 
uh, their congregation had grown phenomenally. It was seeing great favour, and yet uh, the city council came and said they're going to have to shut down the building. Uh, the building had been condemned. Uh, the fire regulations stated that they couldn't uh, meet in there anymore, uh, and it would need substantial work if they were were to carry on there, uh, which would take money and resources the church just didn't have. Uh, so what did the leadership of the church do at that time? Uh, they could have quite easily uh, railed against the city council and uh, ignored the device in the name of um, uh, in the name of continuing meeting together. We've seen that kind of response uh, recently with, with COVID situations. But rather than do that, they, they got down in prayer and they asked, okay, God, what are you doing here? What doors are you opening uh, in this place? And so out of that, uh, so we, as we couldn't meet together in, in large congregations, they launched missional communities in spaces throughout the city, groups of, say, around 50 people that met together uh, with an outward, outward focus around a common heart. Uh, there were groups that met around outreach to students, uh, to workplace ministries, uh, around sports activities. Uh, but the one we became a part of uh, was an outreach uh, based around the vulnerable people of Sheffield, uh, looking at drug addicts, sex workers, those caught in uh, cycles of poverty, the homeless. And so we found ourselves with a group of people uh, looking to start a church service uh, for the people they'd been ministering to for some time. Uh, now these guys weren't much to look at. They weren't highly educated or wildly talented, but they had a, a real heart for this ministry. They'd been steadfast in this work over many years. Uh, they'd been uh, working with soup kitchens, uh, with outright outreach to the, the red light district of Sheffield, working with drug addicts, working with the homeless, counselling around uh, poverty uh, and breaking that cycle. And so we, uh, we became part of this group, uh, looking to set up a, a church service uh, for these people that they'd been working with for so many years. And we really felt uh, spoken to by uh, the passage out of Isaiah 58, and particularly verses 6 and 7. Uh, it says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And so we found uh, a spot in the middle of Sheffield, a place called uh, the Sadaka. Uh, this was a building that was uh, opposite a uh, fried chicken shop, uh, which repeatedly you could uh, go and order a bag of whatever you desired on the side uh, of your fish and chips when you're on your chicken and chips. Uh, and so this was a place that uh, the guys uh, that we were ministering to could feel really at home, could feel that they're not like a church building where they would feel alien and out of place, but a, a place where they felt they could really belong. And so we started up a very basic service uh, from the start, the, the guys we were working said, we don't want people just uh, coming and blowing because they're talented. We want people to be a part of this who have a heart for it. So we had a group of homegrown musicians, a single guitar, a couple of guys that used to play on street corners uh, who were actually uh, part of uh, part of this, this group of uh, misfits, uh, for want of a better word. Uh, there were very simple messages. Uh, there was very simple food that was lovingly prepared. Not much to look at. And yet this presence of the Spirit in that place was tangible. There were so many services where you could really sense that God was at work. It wasn't what we were doing. It was what God was doing, uh, how he was ministering to this group of people. And so we saw many people come through those doors over the time we were there. Real relationships got formed uh, between 
the guys leading and the guys coming in there to the extent where those that came along started to take a bit of a leadership role as well. And lives uh, ultimately transformed by the gospel. Uh, we could tell you many stories of people uh, we came across. Uh, significantly, uh, Sarah was born around that time and uh, we actually had her christened uh, as, as a part of uh, one of those services at the Sadaka. And just that um, that sense of family around that, I think, really spoke uh, to a lot of us around what God was doing at that time. And it was from these beginnings that uh, a ministry called Restore was born, uh, that the church is now at the central part of that uh, church at St Thomas in Philadelphia. A combination of ministries um, that were previously on the fringe of the church that was brought to the centre. Uh, and a coordinator was then employed by the church, Emma, uh, being that first person that took on that role, to oversee and to manage and to facilitate that, to bring them in from the fringe and to uh, bring it as a real core part of the ministry of the church. So the church had a door shut. Uh, but rather than focus on that shut door, uh, the church endured and sought out what God was doing. And another door was opened in an unexpected way. But the kingdom came and lives were transformed. So I said, too often we have a set idea about what it is we're called to do and what we think uh, our ministry should look like and where we're called to serve. And we end up neglecting what God has set right in front of us. Uh, in our men's group on Thursday, we looked at a passage in 1 Samuel uh, that tells of an episode in David's life. David, who had been anointed king uh, of Israel, and yet he was being pursued and persecuted by a jealous king, Saul. So he has to escape and he goes to the cave of Adullam. But rather than grow bitter and complain about how uh, his vision of what it meant to be king wasn't being fulfilled, he looked at what God was doing and God uh, brought about him all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented. They gathered around him, they were drawn to this person around 400 guys. So David looked to the open door uh, that um, God was putting in front of him. And this was, these were uh, uh, his initial followers. So next outcome. This is really the end game, uh, the promise. And we see this at the end of this passage here. This is the great why. To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. This is Christ's amazing promise to the church, to those who hold on, who overcome. To the church in Philadelphia who had been shut out of the synagogue, who had been excluded, persecuted and abandoned by society. Christ says, we'll make them pillars in the temple of God, never again to leave. This is our great hope. This is why we endure patiently and with hope, allowing suffering to refine us, to educate and enrich us, to build perseverance, to develop character, knowing that we will dwell forever in the house of God. So let us not compromise. Let us not look for the easy way out, but rather let's persevere in the face of pain and suffering. Look to what God is doing not what he's not doing. Understand that when he opens doors, he does so with all the resources and authority of heaven. So God bless you as you look to him and run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Amen.